Well, as we come to the Word of God, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 for this message entitled, He is Your Father. It's been my intention to more or less work through the Old Testament, canonically as it would be. But uh, a few weeks ago when I told Doug Baldridge that, that I was going to be preaching out of Genesis 6 to 9, you know, which is the flood account on Father's Day, he's like, well, what, what would you think about uh, preaching about God as Father? <laughs> I'm like, nah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but uh, well, here we are. I think the Lord made it clear that this would be wise. Our text for today is Romans 8, 14 to 17, but to put it in context, I want to begin by reading verses 1 to 18 of Romans 8, and we're going to, we're going to see in these first 18 verses of Romans 8 a stark contrast between believers and unbelievers, or as the text puts it, between those who are in the flesh, unbelievers, and those who are in the spirit. Those who are in the flesh are in their originally, uh, excuse me, original spiritually dead condition in which they were born. And those who are in the spirit are those who have been born again, given spiritual life by the Holy Spirit. And it's in the context of giving that distinction between believers and unbelievers that Paul here describes those who are believers as those who are adopted by God and are now his children and are thus his heirs. So I want to say this to you if you are here and you're not a Christian. Here's how I want you to listen to this sermon. If, if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, I want you to listen and consider that this is who God can be to you. Right now, God stands as your creator and your judge. The scripture would identify you as a child of the devil and as a child of God's wrath. And if you do not turn to God in faith and repentance, you will be the recipient of his wrath forever and ever. But... If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sufficient sacrifice, which paid the penalty for sinners, you can have God as your father and receive all of the joys and blessings of being a child of God, which we will read some of or study some of today. Well, if you're there, Romans 8, follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot 
please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now here's our text. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is the word of God. Paul's great burden in this passage is to help believers understand their relationship with God. Why is that so important? Because what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, A.W. Tozer wrote. And as we battle with sin and experience suffering, it's essential that we have a right understanding of who we are before God. Or put another way, it's critical to know what God thinks of you. Paul's purpose in bringing up our adoption by God in this passage is to teach us that knowing that God is your father and knowing what kind of father he is brings stability and strength when we're under the oppressive weight of sin or suffering. Many Christians live the Christian life as though God is like a derelict father whose temper is about to flare at any moment. It's true that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but many Christians have a sinful fear of God. They fear that they are under condemnation. They fear that they will be punished by God. They fear that they won't measure up to God's standard, and so at any moment God will punish them for their misdeeds. They fear things that are false about God, and thus they miss what is true about him. God does not want you to live that way. So here in Romans 8, 14 to 17, God reveals to us what kind of father he is. Specifically, he tells us here that he cares for you when you're battling sin or experiencing suffering. Now, before we get to that, This passage begins in verse 14 by identifying who are the children of God. So look again at verse 14. He says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. 
You know, you'll often hear people in the world say, hey, we're all God's children. That is not true. It is true that we're all God's creatures and that we're all under the sovereign rule of God, whether or not we recognize it. But it is not true that we are all God's children. To be a child of God is a special title reserved for a few among God's creatures. And here we see who those few are, who God's children are. Namely, they are those who are led by the Spirit of God, which is simply a way of describing those who are true believers in Christ. To be led by the Spirit here does not mean that you have some mystical relationship with the Holy Spirit where you're getting messages from God or He impresses things on your heart or He compels you to to do some kind of action. No, this is leading in the overall direction of your life. In fact, earlier in this section, starting in the beginning of chapter 8, Paul describes various ways in which the Holy Spirit leads God's children. Look at verse 2. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The the spirit of life, as he's called there, leads God's children by freeing them from the law of sin and death. That is to say, he cuts the chain uh, that has enslaved people to sin such that they are now free from sin and now able to serve another master, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look back a page or so in chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, excuse me, 17 and 18, it says, but thanks be to God. That though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That is the work of the Spirit in your life. He frees us from slavery to sin and enables us to obey God. Going back to chapter 8, look at verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh, it says, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. The Spirit of God leads us by enabling us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Whereas before we were dead to God, unable to understand the things of God, the Spirit leads us by illuminating our minds such that we can now set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So the Spirit leads us by freeing us from slavery to sin and death. He leads us by illuminating our minds, enabling us to, to know the things of God. And third, He leads us by helping us submit to God. Look at verse 7 to the beginning of verse 9. He writes, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. What's stated negatively of unbelievers here is in contrast to what is positively true of believers. Namely, that those who have the Spirit of God are able to submit to God And therefore, they have the capacity to please God. When you have the Spirit within you, and you hear God's standard of right and wrong, 
The Spirit enables you to joyfully come under that standard. You delight in the law of God, Psalm 1. You rejoice in the truth. You, you see the beauty of God's design for life. And as a result, you respond to the law of God. And that pleases Him. Now, finally, those who are led by the Spirit are able to overcome the curse of sin in their own physical bodies. Look again at verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. To have life given to your mortal body means to have what were once irresistible cravings of the flesh can now be overcome and replaced with godly desires. For example, one who craved alcohol and his life was oriented all around the next drink, not only can he avoid alcohol, but his cravings and desires can be changed to things that please God. The one who lived for sexual pleasure can, by the Spirit, live and delight in purity. The one who uses food to satisfy the longings of the heart can now have a right relationship to food and find their satisfaction in Christ. Those who are led by the Spirit might say, the Spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Saying that acknowledges that the curse of sin still resides in our bodies, and indeed it does. But we cannot say, I can't help it. My body needs it. I can't not give my body what it wants. To say that is to deny that you have the Holy Spirit within you. So in summary, how do you know that you are a child of God? Well, you know you are a child of God if you are led by the Spirit. And how do you know if you are led by the Spirit? You know you are led by the Spirit when, according to this section, you've been freed from slavery to sin. Your mind is able to comprehend the things of God. And you're able to delight and to submit to God. And you're able to overcome the sinful desires of the flesh. All of that is the Spirit's work in the believer's life. Now, there's a lot more that the Spirit does, but that's just in this particular section. Those are clear evidences here that you are led by the Spirit of God and are thus a child of God. You know, in John 8, Jesus uses these evidences to point, to, that, to point out to the Pharisees that they themselves are not children of God. Listen carefully to what Jesus says in John 8, 42 to 47 to hear how he communicates this to the Pharisees. He says to them, If God were your father, you would love me, indicating they don't have the ability to please him. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. They were unable to comprehend the things of God. He goes on to say, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. They were enslaved to sin. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak truth, you do not believe. Again, they were unable to set their mind on the things of the Spirit. He goes on, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? 
He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. So the Pharisees were not able to hear, understand, and respond to the truth the way they ought to have because they did not have the Spirit of God. They were not of God. At the end of John chapter 6, when thousands of people had walked away from Christ, Jesus says this to his disciples, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. For this reason I said to you, that no one can come to me unless it's granted to them by the Father. And so it is that here in Romans chapter 8, Paul affirms with Jesus that the work of the Spirit in a person's life is what identifies them as a child of God. Are you a child of God? Can you examine your own life and find those evidences in your life of the Spirit's work? It's not about perfection. It's about capacity or ability. Do you love sin or do you hate sin? Are you able to choose not to sin? Are you able to understand and embrace God's word? Do you find yourself affirming and loving God's word when you hear it proclaimed? Do you find within yourself the ability to choose righteousness? Do you delight to submit to and please God? These are all evidences not of your own goodness, but of the Spirit's leading in your life. And if the Spirit leads you in these ways, you can be confident that you are a child of God. You know, there is no greater privilege than to have the title child of God bestowed on you. It's not a title that you can earn. It's certainly not a title that any of us deserve. It's a title bestowed solely because God has set his love on you by redeeming us out of our sin, making us his own. 1 John 3, 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called sons of God. And such we are, he says. But the doctrine of adoption is perhaps the most acknowledged and least appreciated doctrines. We acknowledge the doctrine of adoption every time we call God our Father. And we acknowledge that doctrine every time we call one another brother or sister. But often it seems that when we use those titles of God and of one another, it's really not much more meaningful to us than if we were just acknowledging our you know, second cousin twice removed. Often we use that with one another because, frankly, we can't remember each other's names. (laughs) That we lack an understanding of adoption is reflected in how little it affects our lives and our relationship with God. You know, many times we're like an orphan adopted out of poverty and destitution who yet hides food in their pockets because they don't know that they're going to have another meal. Sometimes we can be like a child who jumps at any sign of trouble because they just might get moved to another home. Or perhaps we're like a child who worries about the future because they don't realize the stability of the situation that they're in. Or perhaps we're like the child who fights anyone who says a crossword to them because if they don't stand up for themselves, no one else will. 
So often we fail to ground our identity and our life on the fact that we are children of the God of the universe. The Gospel of John emphasizes how Jesus grounded his identity and his actions on his relationship to his Father. uh, Jesus said in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these the Son also does in like manner. He said in John 14, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. Then he began his high priestly prayer in John 17 this way, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Again, I say Jesus grounded his identity and his actions on the fact that he was the Son of God. And so it should be with us. But in order for us to do that, we have to know what kind of father we have. We need to understand how he relates to us. And while there are many truths in Scripture in that regard, here in verses 15 to 17, we find three characteristics of our Father that strengthen us in the face of sin and suffering. Three characteristics that strengthen us in the face of sin and suffering. First, we find in verse 15 that He is your shelter in the storm. He is your shelter in the storm. Second, we see that our Father gives you confidence in the face of doubt. He gives you confidence in the face of doubt. And third, He secures you for eternity. He secures you for eternity. Let's begin by looking at the first characteristic of our Father. Your Father is your shelter in the storm. Look at verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Here, Paul teaches us what kind of father we have. Namely, he is not the kind of father who produces fear in his children, but one to whom his children can turn to in the storms of life. Too often, believers think, as I said earlier, that God is angry and irritable, and that his occasional momentary smiles are quickly replaced by angry looks whenever his Children make the smallest mistake. No one can measure up to that father's standard. And what's worse, there's no escape from his oppressive home. That's how many believers live. I talk to them all the time. Against such a distorted view of God, the word of God teaches us here that our God is an intimate protector who cares for his children and warmly embraces those in need of forgiveness or strength or help. Notice how he says here, we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. The word spirit there is is used in the sense of a a mindset or a condition, much like we might say, oh, he's in good spirits today. That's that's the kind of way it's being used. The, The mindset that we have not received is a mindset of slavery leading to fear again. In other words, as sons and daughters of God, our new father is not like our old father. Our old father, the devil, was a cruel master. 
Again, we were slaves to sin and death, and He ruled us by fear. Hebrews 2.14 says that Jesus came to free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The unbeliever, whether they acknowledge it or not, is afraid of death, perhaps because of the uncertainty of what's to come, perhaps because of the judgment that they know is coming or for some other reason, but no matter what, there is fear. But you know, it's also possible for a believer to struggle with fear. Why? Because if you have the wrong view of God, you might fear judgment. You might fear punishment. Though you're a believer, you can't see God's face. And so you're afraid that when you see Him, He might turn to you and you might see a furrowed brow or a slanted lip that indicates He's disappointed, if not angry. But beloved, that's not the spirit that we've been given. That is not the mindset conveyed to us in God's word. God doesn't want you to think that you're a nameless slave that can only disappoint. Notice again what he says there in verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery again, leading to, a, uh, uh, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. Now, a spirit of adoption there could refer to the Holy Spirit, but being parallel to a spirit of slavery, it seems better to understand it as, again, a mindset or a condition of adoption, which is to say that our condition is one of having been adopted by God. Beloved, all of those who have trusted in Christ have been brought into the family of God. God is our Father, Christ is our brother, and all those adopted into God's family are now part of our family. And by virtue of our adoption, we live in the home, as it were, of the king of the universe who is faithful and just and merciful and gracious and loving and patient and kind and generous and compassionate and wise. Our father knows everything that there is to know. And he can do anything that he desires. And what he desires is always good and right. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, 48, your father in heaven is perfect. How does that perfect heavenly father act? Well, Jesus says there that God is good and kind and loving, not only to his children, but also to his enemies. And so if God treats his enemies with extraordinary grace, how much more will he treat his children in ways that bring blessing and joy into their lives? Amen. And it's because of the kind of father that he is that then we can cry out, as it says here, Abba, Father. Now, if you've been in church for very long, you've probably heard that Abba is an intimate title, whereas Father might be a formal title. Very few of us refer to our dads as Father. But Abba is more like Daddy or Dad. And what's usually said about this phrase is that, isn't it wonderful that we can have such an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father, that we can call Him Daddy. 
Well, that's true as far as it goes, but my friends, it doesn't go far enough. There is a greater point to be made here. When you remember that the context before these verses is speaking about the believer's relationship to sin, and the context after these verses is talking about this believer's relationship to suffering, you, you come to understand that, what, that Paul is making a critical point about the believer's relationship to God in the midst of sin or suffering. And here's the point. God, your father, is a shelter in the storm. No matter what you're going through, no matter how much you're struggling with sin, no matter how much suffering you're, you're walking through or why, you can find refuge in your father. You see, Abba is the title children use when they are in pain or distress. Jesus referred to God as Father hundreds of times in the Gospels. He only referred to God as Abba once. Turn over to Mark chapter 14 with me. Mark chapter 14. In Mark 14... Starting in verse 32, we find the account of the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that Jesus was betrayed. Look at how Jesus prays to his Father in verses 33 to 36, and what Mark says about it. Mark 14, 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. In verse 33, Mark says that Jesus was very distressed and troubled. And then in verse 34, Jesus himself says that he was deeply grieved to the point of death. And then verse 35 says that he fell to the ground, which you could say he collapsed under the weight of his distress. And it's in that moment of distress and trouble and grief where his physical strength failed him that he cries out, Abba! Father, the Son of God sought refuge in His Father at His greatest time of need. Now, it doesn't say it here in Mark, but in Luke chapter 22, verse 43, it's recorded that God's response to Jesus' prayer is that the Father sent an angel who appeared to Him to strengthen Him. The plan of redemption was to move forward. There was no other way. It was indeed the Father's will that He would give His life as a ransom for many. But the Father responded to His Son's cry by strengthening Him for what was to come. Psalm 18 describes God as our strength, our rock, our fortress, our deliverer, the one in whom we take refuge, our shield, and our stronghold. Those words obviously bring to mind to us an impersonal object of protection, a big rock or a cave or a fortress. 
But when you combine those ideas with Romans 8.15, we see that we have a very personal, intimate relationship with God whose power and strength is not just available to us, but He delights to surround us with His care. Psalm 34 says, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and rescues them. When you are in distress because temptations to sin seem irresistible, you can cry out, Abba, Father, help me to deny the flesh and honor You. When you are crushed by sufferings, you can cry out, Abba, Father, I'm overwhelmed by this suffering. Strengthen me. Deliver me. Help me. Be glorified through me. Whether or not you use the title Abba, the point is that you can turn to God and not away from Him. Rather than shrinking away from God in your time of trouble, run to Him because He is your shelter in the storm. That is the kind of Father that He is. The second characteristic of our Father is that He that strengthens us in the face of suffering and sin is that He gives us confidence in the face of doubt. He gives us confidence in the face of doubt. Look at verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Here we see that our Father's Spirit who indwells us actively confirms to and with our spirit that we are indeed His children. When you struggle with sin or when you experience a long season of suffering, it is not uncommon for doubts to rise up in your heart about your relationship with God. There's just something about the deceptive nature of sin and the impact of of prolonged suffering that calls into question our assurance of salvation. And left to ourselves, we would be left to, to be in constant fear and uncertainty about our standing before God. But glory to God, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Notice again how it says there in verse 16 that the Spirit testifies or bears witness with our spirit. It's possible to take that as meaning that the very presence of the Spirit is in and of itself validation that you are a child of God, and that is true. But the word testifies is not the the simple basic word to testify or give testimony. There's a prefix added to the word which adds to the idea that it's testifying together, testifying with. In other words, there's a joint testimony between the Holy Spirit and our spirit. In fact, if you look down at chapter 9, verse 1, Paul uses this same word. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me. Same word, in the Holy Spirit. What he's saying there is in order to emphasize the fact that he's telling the truth, he's he not only says, I am telling the truth. He says, my conscience is now standing up there on the witness stand with me and my conscience together. We are testifying to the truth of what I'm saying. And so here in verse 16, Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit joins with our spirit in testifying to the truth of our status as children of God. 
Now, earlier I pointed out evidences even from this own chapter that confirm whether the Holy Spirit leads us as confirmation that we are children of God. So just to help us even more, I want to add to that list from another passage. Turn over with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and we'll see several evidences just in this chapter as well. How does the Holy Spirit testify with our spirit that we are children of God? Well, here in Galatians 5, we can see at least four evidences of the Spirit's work. And we'll just look at these quickly. The first line of evidence that the Spirit is in our lives is that He creates a war in our soul. Look at verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. When I'm counseling someone who's struggling in a pattern of sin, and as a result is questioning their salvation, one of the questions that I will ask them is, are you engaging in your sin freely and happily? Or is there a battle going on in your soul? Is there a war going on where your soul is tormented by this sin that you're struggling with? Well, that battle is evidence that the Holy Spirit is within you. The second line of evidence produced by the Spirit is that we are not under the law. Look, look at verse 18 there. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That is to say that Rather than living restricted and constrained by the law of Moses, we are free to live out our liberty in Christ within the life-giving boundaries of God's moral standards. Rather than being restricted in our diet or constrained by the numerous rituals of purity and feasts and sacrifices, we can enjoy living for God's glory and enjoying His good gifts to, uh, to us in the world. That freedom of conscience is evidence of being a child of God. And then a third line of evidence is that the Spirit produces God's character in us. Look at verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, it's true that by God's common grace, unbelievers can manifest these kinds of characteristics in their lives, but... What makes the fruit of the Spirit unique is that it is purposefully modeled after our Heavenly Father, and it is growing and increasing in our lives over the course of time. And then a fourth line of evidence that we can see is that the Spirit is helping us kill sin in our life. Look at verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Though that's written in the past tense, it does not mean that believers have had a one-time crucifixion. Now, they no longer experience sin or sinful passions and desires in their life. In the same way that the fruit of the Spirit is not all there all at once the moment we get saved. Also, the crucifying of the flesh is an increasing reality in our life. And that happens as we, by the Spirit's strength, deny the flesh and increasingly manifest the fruit of the Spirit. So those are just four works of transformation that the Holy Spirit works in our lives to testify to His presence, which demonstrates that we are children of God. 
In his book, Heirs with Christ, Joel Beakey writes, If in adoption we were to receive only the privilege and status of being God's children, something would still be missing. The adopted child retains the nature of his biological parents, but he does not assume the nature of his adoptive parents. God, in His amazing grace, not only gives us the status and privileges of being His children by adoption, but He also gives us the spirit of sonship as a witness to our adoption, which abides within by spirit-worked regeneration. The Holy Spirit implants a new nature within us. God changes our sin-loving personalities by the new birth. In other words, he says, after changing our nature, excuse me, after changing our status and adopting us into his family as his sons, God will not allow us to go on behaving like children of the devil. Unquote. What a joy to have the Holy Spirit. Do you, do you doubt that you are a child of God? Examine your life for the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Examine, this examination is not about how good you are or how much, or how little you sin. Rather, the Spirit testifies with our spirit by pointing to His work of transformation at the core of our heart. And giving you His Spirit, our Father gives us confidence in the face of doubt. Well, not only is your Father a shelter in the storm, not only does your Father give you confidence in the face of doubt, the third characteristic of of your Father that strengthens you in the face of sin and suffering is this, your Father secures you for eternity. Coming back to Romans 8, look at verse 17. Your Father secures you for eternity. He writes, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. By virtue of being children of God, the direct implication is that as children, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our present relationship with God has everlasting benefits that cannot be taken away. Notice how he says there at the beginning of that verse, and if children, heirs also. Most of us don't think about our status as heirs of our parents. For most of us, what we stand to inherit will not have any impact on our lives in any significant way. So there's really not that much to think about. Not so for the children of God. Our status as heirs should affect your life today because of of what it means for eternity. It says here that we are heirs of God. This is to emphasize that our Father is God. And what we stand to inherit is everything that belongs to God. Our rights and privileges as heirs of God could not be greater. There there is no one greater than God. No one with more power or glory or dominion than God. There is no one richer in possessions and wealth than God. Being the infinite, eternal God... What we stand to inherit is infinite and eternal. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God 
through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In the words of Jesus from Matthew 6, our inheritance is secure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. You know, in, in this life, inheritances are measured in bank balances and perhaps properties or possessions or furniture or jewelry and the like. But our inheritance in heaven is not measured by trinkets and stuff that perish and are used up. What is it measured by? It's measured by the infinite God. One of my favorite books by John Piper is called God is the Gospel. I commend it to you. God is the Gospel. And his point in that book is that the good news that we proclaim is not that we get stuff from God, but that we get God Himself. When we think about heaven, it is certainly right and good to think about all the glorious things that we'll see and experience, which Revelation 21 and 22 give us hints about. And we can certainly delight and anticipate being reunited with our loved ones who have died in Christ and being together throughout all the saints, with all the saints throughout all the ages. But far and above all of that, what ought to take our breath away is that when we get to glory, we will be with God and He will be with us. There will no longer be a barrier between us and God. No longer will our natural eyes be blind to the spiritual realm. No more will sin keep us from seeing and experiencing His glory. We will worship unhindered, full-throated, and our bodies will be fully engaged without fear or awkwardness or embarrassment. Heirs in this life get stuff when their parents die. As heirs of God, we will get God when we die. But there's more. Notice that Paul says there in verse 17 that we're not only heirs of God, we're fellow heirs with Christ. This is to say that all that belongs to Christ belongs to us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, it says that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand, at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, it says that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, what does that mean? Consider this. In Psalm 2, we find the following promise from the Father to the Son. The Father says, I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now get this. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, as Jesus is speaking to the seven churches, He says this to the church of Thyatira. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. Again in chapter 3 verse 21, he says to the church in Laodicea, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. The Bible says that our God is a jealous God, meaning that he will not share his glory with any false God or anyone else. 
But Jesus, while still being rightly jealous for His glory, He gladly shares His inheritance with those whom He gave His life to save. Jesus will rule over this earth in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And then He will rule over the new earth for eternity. And we will have the joy and privilege as fellow heirs of Christ of ruling with Him. Now there's an important caveat here at the end of verse 17. Paul says, If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. This is the same qualifier Jesus gave there in Revelation 2 and 3 where He said, To Him who overcomes, perseverance through trials of this life will result in glory. Remaining steadfast in your faith in Christ doesn't earn your inheritance. It simply gets you to it. There's no reward for a runner who starts the race and then gives up halfway through. But there's o- there is only reward for those who make it to the end. Now here's the good news. Let me remi- remind you of what I read from 1 Peter 1 verse 5. You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So if you are in Christ and you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, your perseverance through trial is guaranteed by the power of God. Jude 24 says that God is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. If you are truly in Christ, you will make it. You will persevere by God's grace. Now, why does Paul add this caveat here? Why even mention the need to persevere? Because it just it can be confusing. Now, now I have to worry about persevering. Well, he adds this here because we constantly need reminders that suffering in this life is to be expected for the believer. Because our problem is whenever we experience suffering is we think something went wrong. Maybe God is mad at me. Maybe I messed up. No, we must view suffering as the pathway to glory. 1 Corinthians 4.17 says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. He compares there, as you heard, momentary, just a little bit, light, you can handle that, with eternal weight. Suffering doesn't always feel that way, does it? But that's what it is, if you compare it to eternity. Paul makes a similar statement in verse 18, here in Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Beloved, your Father has secured you for eternity. You and I have an inheritance beyond comprehension waiting for us. Amen. Yes, we will suffer in this life. 
But whether we suffer for nine or 90 years, compared with the uncountable eons of glorious eternity with God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our suffering today is endurable. This is the kind of Father we have. One to whom we can run to be a shelter in the storm. One who gives us confidence when we have doubt about our place in His family. And one who secures us for eternity. I want to close with two quotes from lesser-known Puritans. The first is a lengthy quote by Stephen Marshall who helps us think in a Trinitarian way about our adoption. And the second is a short quote by Wilhelmus uh, Brackel. Marshall writes, just listen carefully to these words. How the love of the Father ought to motivate us toward a greater realization of our adoption. People on earth often adopt children because they have none or because they, the ones they have are not pleasing to them so that they're not, their name will not be perpetuated well. But why did the Father condescend from all glory to choose you? A mere worm at best. Yes, an enemy by nature. When he had a perfect devoted son from all eternity. How the love of the son ought to motivate us toward a greater realization of our adoption. People on earth are seldom troubled that they have no more brothers or sisters to share in their inheritance. In fact, they often fear they have too many. But the Son of God came to this earth to give his blood to purchase poor worms to be co-heirs and a brother with himself, and that he would likewise give himself to thee as a brother, that thou shouldest be one mystically with him. How the love of the Spirit ought to motivate us toward a greater realization of our adoption. How amazing it is that the Spirit would condescend to indwell us, to alter and frame our cursed natures, and as need shall require to be a constant supplication of of comfort and refreshing to us. Here is love like never heard of, that the Lord should rear poor worms and let such a work pass upon them to make them the sons of God. Unquote. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all work together to make and keep you and I as children of God. And then finally, Brackle writes, from being a child of the devil to being a child of God, from being a child of wrath to be becoming an object of God's favor, from being a child of condemnation to becoming an heir of all the promises and possessor of all things, of all blessings, and to be exalted from the greatest misery to the highest felicity. This is something which exceeds all comprehension and all adoration. Let's pray. Our Father, this meditation seems all too brief. There is so much more that you've given us in your word to understand about you as our Father, but we are thankful for this taste of good food from your word. We thank you for who you are as our Father. That you care for us, you provide for us, you meet our needs. You minister to us in our time of sorrow and grief. 
You don't judge us when we sin, but you forgive us. You wipe us clean. And you empower us to move forward with freedom and joy. Lord, thank you that even when we sinfully doubt our place in your family, that you don't look at us confused and frustrated with why we just don't get it, but rather you just continue to remind us by your spirit that we are yours, not because of anything we've done, but because of all that you have done. And Lord, we thank you for the inheritance that we stand to inherit. Indeed, we, we cannot wait for it. We long for the day when the curse of sin will finally be done away with, that we will stand before you perfect and holy and righteous, not just in, in declaration, but in fact. When we will be able to worship you and serve you free and fully as you deserve. And so, Lord, would you cause these truths to wash over us and to give us joy and delight as your children and empower us even as we move into this next week with whatever you have for us. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.